Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Company and other factors not available. The following program is sponsored Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Jesus did not selfishly grasp the position and privileges of deity. If we may put it reverently, our Lord Jesus did not sit pretty on the throne of glory while the world was doomed. He stepped down and became obedient to death on the cross. He leaves that position of privilege when he embraces our humanity and dies our death. This is unbelievable stuff. Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Everyone who's ever been in a church on Easter or even Christmas has heard that Jesus died for our sins. But sometimes we hear this so much that we take his sacrifice for granted, allowing it to lose its potency in our everyday lives. So today, pastor and Bible teacher Philip DeCourcy helps us refocus on the jaw-dropping reality of Christ's death on the cross. It's a message titled, Downward Mobility, Christ, Our Mind. Here's Philip. In rallying the British Isles to arms in the opening days of World War II, Prime Minister Winston Churchill said to the House of Commons in June 1941, I have only one purpose, the destruction of Hitler, and my life is much simplified thereby. As you can tell, Winston Churchill's life was uncomplicated and uncluttered. He had one purpose, to see the destruction and defeat of Nazi Germany under Hitler. He made decisions in the light of that. He made sacrifices to that end. He made commitments for that purpose. Churchill's life was a life in focus. I have only one purpose, the destruction of Hitler, and my life is much simplified thereby. As we turn to God's Word, I would remind you as a Christian brother and sister that the Christian life is to be uncomplicated. The Christian life is to be uncluttered because the Christian is a man or a woman who lives with a singular purpose or a singular passion. The Christian life is a life in focus. It's a life focused on Christ. We saw last time in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's a life with one purpose and one passion. You see, the Christian man is a possessed man, a man possessed by an overarching obsession with Jesus Christ. Wasn't it C.H. Spurgeon who said, what the sun is to the day, what the moon is to the night, what the dew is to the flower, such is Jesus to us. What bread is to the hungry, what clothes is to the naked, and what the shadow of a great rock to the traveler in a weary land, such is Jesus to us. Love that. If Churchill's life 
was defined by the destruction of Hitler, the Christian's life is defined by the exaltation of Jesus. We want to glorify Him. We want to magnify Him, whether in life or in death. And that's why we've been studying the book of Philippians, taking one message from each chapter, because this is a book chock full of Christ. And every chapter has a significant and seminal section that speaks to Christ. In chapter 1, Christ our life. In chapter 2, Christ our mind. In chapter 3, Christ our goal or prize. In chapter 4, Christ our strength. If you remember, we stole an outline from Norman Geisler. He said this, the philosophy of Christian living is Christ our life. The pattern of Christian living is Christ our mind. The prize of Christian living is Christ our goal, and the power of Christian living is Christ our strength. And so we're coming to look at the second of those perspectives. Christ our mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So let me put the text in its context. Beginning back in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul calls them to stand fast in one spirit and in one mind. He picks up that theme again in chapter 2, where he calls them to affection and to mercy towards each other, that they would indeed be like-minded. They would have the same love and be of one accord. He says in verses 3 and 4, "...let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than himself. Let each of you look not only at his own things, but at the things of others." See, in seeking to promote unity through humility... In seeking to foster a lowliness of mind where we put others' interests ahead of ourselves, Paul takes the Philippians to the foot of the cross where we see in the incarnation the humility of Jesus Christ who, being in the form of God, made himself of no reputation, came in the form of a servant, in the likeness of man, and he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So here's Paul's point. It's hard to stand up for your rights. It's hard to make a big deal of yourself. It's hard to put your interest ahead of others when you stand before the cross because there we see the suspension of Jesus' divine rights and the embracing of a humiliating death for us by Him. And so Paul wants them to have the mindset of Christ because that mindset will help them to indeed be of the same mind and of the same love and to act in one accord. So let's look at our text here. And as time allows us, we're going to work our way through under three headings. The example, verse 5. The emptying, verses 6 through 8. And then the exaltation, 9 through 11. Let's look at the example. Paul is promoting humility so that indeed they might enjoy unity. And here he plays his ace card. This is his trump card. You need to be humble because that's the mindset of Jesus. Jesus is our example. Now in this chapter, he will go on to give us other examples. He'll use himself as an example, for he's willing to be poured out for the sake of the Philippians. He'll use Timothy as an example because no one cared for them like Timothy. He will use Epaphroditus as an example because Epaphroditus risked his life to minister to Paul on behalf of the Philippians. But here we have the supreme example. Here we have the shining example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his humility 
descended to death on a cross that we might be lifted up to heaven and enjoy reconciliation with God. This is the mindset they're to embrace. This is the example they're to follow. Notice verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The gospel and the doctrine of the incarnation is to be the framework of their thinking. Christ divested himself of the independent use of his divine prerogatives. He permanently added humanity to his deity. He came to earth not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That was his attitude. That was the framework of his thinking. That was his mindset. And that's got to spill over into our life. Now, this is a mindset that is in contrast to the culture in which they were in. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was marked by pride and prejudice. There was a swagger to the Philippian citizen. And you know what? As they come to the church, the gospel humbles them. The gospel reorients their thinking because the man apart from Christ is the man who loves himself. Doesn't Paul tell us that in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 4, where men are not lovers of God? No, men are lovers of pleasure, and men are lovers of themselves. They are arrogant and haughty, and it's that mindset that must be changed by the gospel. That's the mindset we're born with, where we look after number one, where we push people aside to get to where we're going. We'll trample on them. We'll stand on their fingers as we climb the ladder of success. But the gospel wants to change that mindset that wasn't the mindset of Jesus Christ. And that's not the mindset of those who have come to know him. This is countercultural. This is counterintuitive. You see, as in that they saw in our day, here's the mantra, if it's good for you, it must be good. That means if marriage has turned south and become sour, why put up with the hassle? Just run down to the divorce courts and give yourself a pass. If that's good for you, it's got to be good. That's why people lie at work. That's why kids cheat on their exams. In some cases, that's why Christians hop from church to church, because the ministry doesn't meet their expectations, because you see, it's about them and their music tastes and what a church can do for their children. And that's the mindset that this confronts. And you and I have got to embrace this mindset. It's a humble mindset. It's a service-oriented attitude. It's an other's first perspective. So we have this example. In fact, maybe the best way for me just to illustrate this and move on, when we're talking about a mindset, the set of the mind. I was playing at the Masters University golf tournament on Monday with several guys out of our church. And you know what? A couple of my shots went left into the trees. And I'm very capable of doing that. I can go left into the trees and I can go right into the trees. Take your pick. But here was the thing about these shots. They were straight. It wasn't like I hooked them or faded them. They were actually straight. And I said to the guys, what, what happened? And they said, look at your feet. And I looked at my feet and that's exactly where I was pointed. Because in golf, it's the set of your feet that's very important. When you get to the tee box, You've got to put your first foot forward, turn left, put your shoulders directly in line of the line of fire, and then you bring your other foot, you get yourself set. You set your feet, make sure that you're in line with the goal, and then if your swing is correct, your ball will go in that direction. Look at your feet. They're pointed in that direction. Let me ask you, as you look at your mind, where is it pointed? 
towards others, gospel advancement, sacrificial service. That's the mindset that you ought to have. So let's move on. We've not only got the example, secondly, we've got the emptying. Paul now begins to explain, explore, and extol the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 8, we have a crash course in Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. And here we're told about his person. Here we're told about his nature and work. Here we have the doctrine of the incarnation. Here we have the message of Christ's death on the cross. This is Christmas and this is Easter. Now, typically in the Gospels, we have those explained historically, how they came about, the unfolding of the events and the players involved. But in the epistles, they are not historically explained, they are theologically explained. And here Paul begins to unpack the step-by-step manner in which Christ descended from heaven to earth. Because here, he's given the Philippians their motivation and model. He's challenged them what? Hey, Don't act haughty. Don't act conceited. Don't make it about yourself. Church life is community life. It's about serving others. It's about being humble. It's just saying, you know what? I'm here. What can I do? Ask me to do anything. I'll do it. And you'll do it with the right spirit. It might be little. It might be much. But before God, it's always much and it's always great. And they're going to be motivated to have that kind of attitude because they have the example of the descent of Christ. You know what? The world talks about climbing the ladder. The gospel's about Jesus descending the ladder to the point of death, even on a cross. The Bible talks about downward mobility as opposed to the world's focus on upward mobility. Do you realize in the kingdom of God, the way up is down? Jesus came down and then God highly exalted him. That's the pattern of the gospel. It's striking and it's counterintuitive. So let's look at this descent this emptying of Jesus. And let's look at it a rung at a time. As Jesus comes down the staircase or down the ladder to the point of death on a cross. Notice the first phrase in verse 6, who being in the form of God. The word being means existing or to be in a continuous state. So Jesus existed in a continuous state of being God. The word form here could be misunderstood. It could give you the impression just a mere appearance or an operation. But that would be a mistake. The word carries the idea of essence or unchanging character. It's not a mere appearance. He didn't merely appear to be God. He was God. And he had existed in a continuous state of being God. So what we have here is a declaration, a Christian declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, the preexistence of Jesus Christ. Jesus never came into existence. Jesus is not the creation of the Father. Jesus didn't have a beginning. That's what cults teach. That's what false doctrine says. This is one of these doctrines we dig trenches around and fight to the death over. Now, Jesus existed as God eternally. That's what Paul is saying here. Isn't that what the Bible teaches, by the way? Write a couple of verses down, look at them later. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read in Colossians 1, verse 15, 17, that Jesus was before all things and is indeed the expression of the invisible God. 
The same is said in Hebrews 1 verse 13, where he's the exact representation of God. Look at the next phrase. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery carries the idea of a thing seized in a robbery. It came to carry the idea more generally of something held on to. So you could translate this verse, who did not hold on to his equality with God, with all its privileges, with all its rights. This speaks of the glorious fact that Jesus did not selfishly grasp or hold on to the position and privileges of deity. But as we'll see, he laid those aside. I like the way one writer put it, J.H. Pickford, in his little book on Philippians, the autobiography of Paul. He said this of Jesus, He was willing to subordinate himself to covenant commitments to bring redemption to a fallen race. If we may put it reverently, our Lord Jesus did not sit pretty on the throne of glory while the world was doomed. He stepped down in perfect submission to the Father's will and became obedient to death on the cross. I love that little phrase. He didn't sit pretty on the throne of heaven. Now, we know that after his ascension, what? He goes and sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The glory that was his is returned. But he sets that glory aside. He leaves that position of privilege when he embraces our humanity and dies our death. This is unbelievable stuff. Jesus gave up his seat and came to the cross. He didn't sit pretty on the throne. He didn't think about his own good and his own glory. He thought about your salvation. This is the mindset that marks the gospel church. Talking about people not giving up seats, I think some of you know, but not everybody knows, that when June and I were married, we we were married about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we headed down to Glasgow Airport late in the evening to pick a flight to go to Corfu, which was a Greek island in the Mediterranean. We were going there for our honeymoon. And we kind of cut it a fine. We were saying goodbye to everybody, kind of lost track of time. So we, we were driven down to Glasgow Airport. We got there and found out we were the last two people to board the airplane. The plane was full, and we soon realized that there was two seats left, one at the front of the plane and one at the back. We explained to the girl at the desk, come on, we just got married. You know what? Don't get between us. That's not a good thing. And she says, oh, I'm sure once you get on board, somebody will give up their seat. Well, this is a plane full of stingy Scots. (laughs) And and, and nobody, can you believe it? Nobody gave up their seat. We spent the hour and a half or two-hour flight to Corfu, me at the back, June at the front. In fact, we landed on a tarmac. We exited the doors, and we went down the stairs and waved at each other, you know? (laughs) Then I shouted, still love you. In fact, it wasn't done. We get into a little bus to go to our hotel. We were the last hotel in the circle of hotels that this bus would stop at. We got to our hotel about three in the morning, get up to our room, opened the door, and there were two single beds. It's true, Bill. It was true, Bill. It was an eventful, it was an eventful honeymoon. You know, the Bible says that the two shall become one, and I want to tell you, you've got to work at that because, because there's a whole lot of things in life will pull you apart thought about another story. When we were at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Toledo, Ohio, we had dear friends, the Armstrongs, Larry and Beth. Beth told me one day that when she got saved out of Roman Catholic background, uh, somehow she ended up at Emmanuel Baptist Church long before I got there. She, I think she just kind of assumed, well, it's a Baptist church. It'll preach the Bible and think that's what you do when you become a Christian. 
She sat down in a seat five minutes later, just before the service starts, a family comes along and says to her, that's our seat. She literally got up, went to another place in the auditorium. (laughs) Welcome to the body of Christ. (laughs) Those who have the mind of Jesus, who got up from his seat. Amazing. That's the mindset. But made himself of no reputation. This has literally emptied himself. This is what theologians call the kenosis doctrine. The kenosis, the emptying of Jesus. Now, there's something we've got to be very clear about. When Jesus comes in human flesh, he doesn't empty himself of deity. He doesn't stop being what he has always been. Remember, Paul has made an argument, he who being in the form of God, he who has existed in a constant state of deity. Well, he doesn't empty himself of deity. I think what this text means is that he sets aside certain privileges and prerogatives. When he adds humanity to his deity, he now lives in submission to the Father. Hebrews 5, 8 tells us, as a son he learned obedience. As we find him prostrate in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Now the Father and the Son were equal, but Christ voluntarily submits himself to the will of the Father. That involves setting aside the divine and independent use of his deity. And he humbles himself. And he makes himself of no reputation. In fact, we know that when he dies that death on the cross, he will lose favor with the Father. And there will be a separation within the Godhead that we can't explain. Mystery of mysteries, God forsaking God. But this is all included in this idea that he empties himself. In fact, as we'll see as we go on to look at the fact he comes in the form of a servant and the likeness of man... Many theologians argue, and I think this is helpful, that his self-emptying isn't so much a matter of subtraction, but a matter of addition. He empties himself in that he adds to his deity humanity, and he lives as a man. Dave Dunn and I were talking about this recently. How often we forget that Jesus Christ, although God in human form, he lived in dependence upon the Father as any man would and as any man should. That's the kenosis is that he added to his deity humanity. And in submitting to the will of the Father in the act of redemption, he sets aside the independent use of his authority. He leaves behind him the glory of heaven and the adoration of angels for the mockery of soldiers and the criticism of the world and the misunderstanding of his disciples. That's Philip DeCourcy encouraging us to keep Christ on our minds and in our hearts. You're listening to Know the Truth, coming to you on the radio and on the web. So if you ever miss a broadcast, you can freely download any sermon you might have missed or purchase your favorite series on CD, including the series we wrapped up last week titled Without Apology. Just go to ktt.org. And if you're new to Know the Truth, we want to send you a free CD message from Philip called Why Does God Allow Us to Suffer? The sermon tackles this common question while casting a vision for how God can use our pain for good. Request the free CD message online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. And you know, as Philip said today, we often lose sight of the amazing reality of what Christ has done. And so many of our struggles come from having too small a view of God. But the more we study God's Word, the larger and more accurate view of God we'll develop. That's why on Know the Truth, we're committed to bringing clear, convicting Bible teaching to men and women across the country. 
Join us in that worthy effort by giving a one-time gift or become one of our monthly Truth Ambassadors. Join the team when you give online at ktt.org or call us at 888-644-8811. However you choose to give today, we have a powerful new book we'd like to send you as our way of saying thank you for your support. It's titled, Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. It's written by pastor and author and theologian J.D. Greer, and it provides a clear and biblical view of God that frees us to experience genuine, confident, and life-transforming faith. You can give online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. So glad you joined us today. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, inviting you back tomorrow for more Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow, and like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat, I would flip flop all night long, I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented my pillow, I wanted it to where you could move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep sleep faster and you will stay there longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed, it's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. You can buy one of my pillows and get one absolutely free. Call 800-517-3636 or go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WAVA. That's 800-516-3636 or go to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WAVA. 800-517-3636. Pastor 